At This Is The City, we strive to provide the story of downtown Los Angeles for all of our listeners, but we can't do it without you. If you enjoy our work, please consider donating on our website. It's easy to do via PayPal, and it helps us cover the costs of producing the show. You can also help others discover the show by sharing us on social media or leaving us a review in iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. From downtown Los Angeles, this is The City, a podcast that focuses on the politics, art, and culture of Los Angeles. I'm your host, Garen Kelsall. This week, we meet Carmen Zella, founder and executive director of Do Art Foundation, a nonprofit that focuses on developing public art projects in Southern California. Well, the downtown area is really exciting because it's becoming an urban center. Also, we'll chat with Jill Stewart, campaign director of the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative. Headed for the March 2017 ballot, it's designed to stop what they call corrupt practices at City Hall. Erica said he needs to get out of the business of planning and sort of the rest of the city council members. First up, let's meet Carmen. The Duart Foundation's presence is quite noticeable here in downtown, even if you didn't realize it. Murals in the historic core, Little Tokyo, South Park, and the Arts District all were born from their mission to commission and create public art. Their penchant for socially engaging work was especially evident at the LA Art Show through artist Jonna Kruder's The Way of the Modern Man, an interactive work that looked at the physiological changes that have occurred with the advent of the smartphone. We spoke with Carmen Zella, the founder of the Do Art Foundation, about the organization and their work. This is The City. I'm Garen Kelzal. Joining me on the line now is Carmen Zella, the founder and executive director of the Do Art Foundation. How are you today, Carmen? I'm doing good, thanks. And I'm glad to have you join us on the show because I wanted to talk about uh, all the work that I've seen you guys been doing around town, including at the L.A. Art Show. And for the folks who aren't already familiar, tell them what the Do Art Foundation is. Yeah, we are a arts organization that focuses on public art. So we have put a lot of our focus in Los Angeles, but we are based in Southern California and most of our projects are reside in, in Southern California. We've been uh, a nonprofit organization for five years, but we've really been active for three of those years with a focus on public art. Um, previously, it was mostly, you know, it was more leaning towards uh, festivals. And then we shifted around three years ago just to put a focus on, on public art. And tell us, if you will, a little bit more about your background. I also understand that you've had quite the career before you started this endeavor. Is that right? Yeah, I was um, an interdisciplinary artist. Um, I uh, got my Master's of Fine Arts at Concordia University in Montreal. Um, I was born in Canada in a little place called Kelowna, which not everyone has heard of in British Columbia. And I did a lot of traveling to the Middle East, to Egypt, and then uh, I lived in London for some time before going to Montreal. And, and then I came out to Los Angeles. I've been here for about 13 years, so it's been... Um, a long time, but I came out here on a Conseil des Arts grant um, from the Canada Council of the Arts to do a video performance piece um, at the brewery um, art complex at a place called Abundant Sugar. And yeah, and so we did that performance piece at that time. And then, you know, life as it is, you know, I edited and did, you know, tossed and turns and, and then met this really group, great group of people um, called the Do Lab, and proposed to them that they start a arts nonprofit, to which um, I was the founder and the founder, 
and they sort of followed me along this crazy journey um, as my board of directors, and we've just persevered and, and continued to work with artists, work with community, work with civic, and have developed a now stable and pretty thriving um, arts organization focused on public art. So what was it that drove you to choose Los Angeles as the place to start this foundation? Um, well, the, the project that I came here with was a focus on surveillance in America. Um, you know, now it feels like eons ago. That was like a very relevant um, subject at the time, um, politically speaking. And, um, and so, yeah, Los Angeles was, um, you know, a place that I ended up coming to because uh, I met a lot of people from Los Angeles when I, I came out to Burning Man um, Festival. Uh, in Nevada, and and then I just ended up coming here and did the performance here. So, but Los Angeles has you know shifted and changed. It's had you know a lot of different um, personalities, I would say, since I've been here for 13 years. And at the time that I got here, it was you know just really this landscape of openness. Um, you know, there was a lot of accessibility, both with um, jobs, uh, places to live, um, you know, places to do site-specific art. And it just, it felt like a really large city, uh, you know, with, without an urban center. And there was a, a, a really amazing opportunity to explore, you know, a lot of different cultures and, and the different areas of Los Angeles, which you know, we're completely unique to each other. And, and L.A. still has that resonance, but, you know, it's definitely um, becoming much more homogenized um, than it was when I first got here. And in checking out the list of work on your website, it seems like here in downtown, we're particularly lucky to enjoy the fruits of your labor. So what drew you to kind of put some of the uh, art and focus there well, the downtown area is really exciting because it's becoming an urban center. It's becoming a destination point and a hub for cultural activity for Los Angeles, where before it wasn't. And, you know, um, many years ago, I can't even remember exactly what the date was, um, but there was a um, initiation or like a um, an incentive to you know, start developing the downtown area. And how they did this was all of the vacant spaces, a lot of the vacant spaces, property owners worked with the city and offered them to galleries and to artists for lease for a dollar a year. Um, because previously there was so many vacancies in the downtown area and it was, you know, a lot of um, um, vandalism and crime and it was just, it was a really scary place to be. And so, the artists started to move in, galleries started to pop up, and it blossomed um, in terms of it becoming an art destination point. And then, of course, the $1 a year leases expired. Um, those galleries, you know, um, a lot of them couldn't hold on. There's actually only one um, artist that I know of, El Nopal Press, um, who's managed to hold on still. Um, but all of the original spaces, you know, went by the by and then it just really started to, the, seed, the seeds were planted and roots started to develop. And from that point, we've just seen this, you know, flourishing of arts and culture 
in the downtown area. And, and, you know, there's tremendous reasons um, outside of just, you know, the, the vacancies and the artist galleries, you know, that were a great, incent- a great incentive to start the economic boom. But, you know, all of the major museums, the paradigm shift of having the Broad um, come into town, the development that's happening in the art district. There's so many different reasons that downtown has become a really exciting destination point and cultural center for the city and, ur- you know, an urban center for the city, sort of taken back its identity that way. And so to be a part of something that's developing and a part of a shift and to, to have, you know, positive connections with communities um, as the shift is developing so that, you know, the um, residents that have always been living here or have been living here for a very long time, they feel included in the public art process, um, that their voices matter and that they're um, included in the conversations. You know, all the the development of creating art and public art is something that's completely different than artists that are creating work in their studio space because there's many more considerations that they have to think about that they otherwise wouldn't think about. And so, you know, being a part of that process and, and, and helping to shepherd um, both artists and communities and building owners, you know, through that process has been tremendous. And Los Angeles and the downtown area, you know, as it's developing, it's, you know, um, we're walking into an opportunity to help define that. And one of the things we always ask folks on the show who work in the world of public art, what do you think is most important to cities and to the people uh, about public art? Public art is an opportunity to not only explain you know, culture uh, to people that are coming from outside of communities to have like a, a window into communities, but it's also for communities to create and cultivate conversation. To be able to, you know, walk down a street um, in an urban environment and feel inspired and be creatively stimulated by your surroundings. It's an opportunity for us to both beautify and establish pride within people that are working and residing in neighborhoods. Um, And it's an opportunity for communities to, you know, bind together in some ways by creating landmarks, um, visual landmarks and auditory landmarks, whatever type of public artwork is being explored. So, yeah, I mean, I think public art is like a really, you know, it's a really strong way to help both define, um, but it's also a really great opportunity to inspire. And so then all of the things that happen as a result of placing public art in community centers and in, in urban centers, you know, there's sort of offshoots of those things, you know, you get um, tourism, you get, our, you know, young kids interested in developing careers in the arts. Los Angeles is a place where there's, you know, um, m- more creative jobs, you know, and you could say that the fashion industry is creative, cooking is creative. I mean, there's more creative jobs here than almost any other um, capital in the United States. So, you know, we're basically preaching to the choir by placing public art in an area and in a city where there's so many creative people. Um, and so it just it seems like a natural progression for Los Angeles to start really embracing public art and, and 
seeing the proliferation of the of the work. And taking note of all the fantastic work you've been able to complete so far, what more do we see coming from the Duarte Foundation in the future? Yeah, I mean, our focus with Duarte Foundation, you know, we we sort of planted um, our foot pretty strongly in the direction of of visual art. And so what we're going to be seeing more from Duarte in the future is the exploration and diversification of the medium of art that's expressed. So we have some really fantastic opportunities um, that we're developing with sound art. We have some really amazing um, talented artists that we're working with um, for performance art. And then we're also working on some really great projects that are installation based. Um, we also are working with organizations, nonprofit organizations that are working in um, the sector of homelessness. We're working with artists that are um, from Skid Row and other areas that are um, more underserved. Uh, and so it's both, there's going to be a, a lot of diversity, both within the range of the artists, the styles, the approaches, the permanency, and the mediums that um, we're, we're going to be exhibiting um, so that the public and, and Los Angeles as a whole, you know, we can start opening up a larger dialogue, um, both to different types of artists, but then, you know, for our community to really engage with these different forms. Which is absolutely wonderful, and we look forward to a thriving future. Carmen Zella is the founder and executive director of the Duarte Foundation. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Eat Drink Podcast is a great way to get new ideas on what to explore downtown. Check out this quick preview to whet your appetite. Welcome to Eat Drink Podcast. I'm your host, Garen Kelsa, along with Anthony Bejarano. I'm just ready to get my chopsticks into something. And we're here at Peking Tavern, which is your amazing restaurant and bar. That's right. Welcome. Thank you so much. I love this place, by the way. We always call this the $10,000 dumpling because uh, we actually won $10,000 on a uh, television show. Guys, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I really feel like I can see you two young guys hanging out in Beijing, getting tore up, and now we're going to do the same thing. Cheers! The Neighborhood Integrity Initiative has been a hot topic amongst political watchers here in Los Angeles. In January, the LA Times reported that LA Weekly's managing editor, Jill Stewart, was leaving her post to become the campaign director of the initiative. She joins us today to tell us more about the revised ballot measure and its move from November to March 2017. This is The City. I'm Garen Kelsaw. Joining me on the line now is Jill Stewart, the campaign director for the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking. And I'm glad you can join us for this very important conversation that's been happening all over the city in regards to development. And can you describe for folks who aren't already familiar what the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative is? Absolutely. Uh, there are two key elements to the initiative, which is aiming for the March 2017 ballot. One is a temporary moratorium on city council votes 
which change dramatically uh, zoning of land on a specific parcel or the height district of the land on a specific parcel or making a what's called a general plan amendment for a specific parcel. All of this in reaction to specific developers who want to ignore the current rules and almost all of whom give money to the city council members who are voting on these things. So that's one issue. The reason we're going after a moratorium is we think the city council needs to get out of the business of acting as individual zoning czars in their areas. They're terrible planners. They don't take into consideration infrastructure at all. In other words, the sewers, the bursting water mains, the narrow roads, uh, these emergency response times have all been dispensed with in these zoning votes by the city council where really planning and zoning does not belong in front of politicians and it's created what we call soft corruption. So we take a break for two years. No more of this really hanky-panky by the city council. During that time, we force the city council, which is the main bad actor in all of this besides the developers, and we force the city council to do something that legally they are supposed to be doing, but they, they, they secretly, I'm saying secretly because no one noticed, voted in 2005 to not have to plan the city anymore. No more general planning. That is one of their duties, not spot by spot rezoning to make people rich, which is what they're doing now. But they're supposed to create a general plan, a framework for where we are going citywide based on known population levels, based on known growth levels as close as we can get, based on what the infrastructure is right now, what the, not what they dream of in 30 years, but right now, what can it handle? Now, they, they aren't doing a general plan. They quietly voted in 2005 to not have to do a general plan. The media did not notice it. We found out about it when doing some research several months ago. So we're going to force them during the two-year break from the meddling they're involved in to do the actual job, which is write a general plan with public input, have citywide meetings. We're requiring them to hold these citywide meetings, and this is important, only at night and on the weekends. So the rooms are filled with real people, not six or seven suits brought in by the developers, which is how way too much of this has gone on. So those are our key measures the final key measure is, uh, there's two things that are new. Well, let me, let me say there are key measures and there's a couple things that are new. Another key measure is the developers can no longer hire the consultants who write the environmental impact reports for their own projects. This is a clear conflict of interest. It's really outrageous, and we are going to switch it over to where it should be. City planning should be writing the environmental impact reports not consultants hired by the developers. Now, the new piece that we announced yesterday is that we are including in our rewritten and much shorter ballot measure, uh, which was 23 pages long. We've whittled it down to eight. It's much more accessible to voters and, and very easy to follow now. And we have added to our measure that an exemption during this moratorium, the exemption during this moratorium is for projects that are 100% affordable housing. And the reason we did this was I've been to probably 25 or 30 community meetings, debates, presentations in the last couple of months. And this is something I heard again and again. There might be some 
worthy, affordable housing projects that come along during the moratorium, what about those? We need this housing. So we listened to the to the really the criticisms and we, we made it a change there. We think it's an important one and that we're very happy about it and we're hearing a lot of really good reaction from doing that. And of course, the initiative itself is not without its detractors, including Mayor Garcetti, who has spoken out against it, some of which say that it's like going after a fly with a sledgehammer, you know, that a moratorium, a full stop is too much for the city to correct the problem. What do you think about that argument? I think Mayor Garcetti should be ashamed of himself. He led the gentrification in Hollywood with no thought to the displacement of 12,000 to 15,000 working class people. When I was the editor of LA Weekly, we proved, we proved this by looking at the actual census tract right down to the block level because Hollywood lost a net of between 12,000 and 15,000 people during the great construction with all the construction cranes and the opening of the new bars and all the wonderful things that happened. Eric Garcetti led by his own actions and policies, a gentrification cleansing of mostly Latino working class people who've been pushed so far away from the subway stops that you're seeing a drop in use. They're actually forcing their own customers away from the subways with this gentrification. And it's, it's not being thought out. He is not a planner and he has no business doing this when he was a city council member and he should now apologize for what he did in Hollywood to the working class. The other prong, so to speak, of that argument we've been hearing is that the general plan is several generations old and that we haven't been able to build denser housing as needed and has resulted in a housing shortage here in Los Angeles. Do you think that that is an inaccurate assessment of the current situation? Well, you know, the State Legislative Analyst's Office, which is where they're getting that argument, I, I believe, made a macroeconomic report that California needs to build a lot more housing. Macroeconomics is not applicable at the local level. That's a statewide, we need a lot of housing. In Los Angeles, every time they build another luxury house, house excuse me, another luxury building, that does not somehow trickle down to the poor. You, you heard me talk about gentrification. Every time it's blockbusting by the three percenters. When they put in another another building on an affordable uh, street, I was just in, in Palms where this is happening. Palms is one of our great places for people to move. It's almost all rental. It's still somewhat inexpensive. You can still live in Palms, but very soon they're going to flip Palms and by they. I mean the city council members in the area, and I mean Eric Garcetti because they are backing, again, flipping of, of land to luxury developers. That causes gentrification as a domino effect on the block. This is the discussion we need to be having. Why are we creating these domino effects, driving out the existing residents, displacing working class, middle class people, and then pretending that the luxury units are somehow going to transform. The LAO, the chief legislative, the state legislative office said, this market rate and luxury housing does transform eventually. It does trickle down. It takes 25 years, according to the legislative analyst office in California, for a 
building, a new building, build at market rate to be affordable to the median income. We haven't got 25 years. And in fact, in Los Angeles, I'm sure you can drive down any street you're familiar with and judge uh, a market rate building, a building that was built nice and new 25 years ago. Those have not trickled down yet in Los Angeles. Trickle down is not working in Los Angeles. We haven't got 30 or 40 years. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a lie. What I'd l- rather have you ask me about instead of their really, really poorly thought out arguments is our discussion about corruption and how the money is driving these debates. That's the problem. The, the special pet project of council members who get money from developers to pursue those pet projects, the campaign funds to the city council and mayor from developers. This is the issue and not all of these wonky discussions about, well, yeah, Jill, but won't the luxury housing somehow help the poor? No, it's not helping the poor and it hasn't helped the poor or the working class in Los Angeles since the housing frenzy started in about 2001. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And in fact, it's really interesting because LA, of course, is no longer a boom city. We're only growing at 1.2%. I noticed that the traffic in some areas, the growth has been modest. The traffic is quadrupled and sextupled because they are putting buildings in all the wrong places. It's, It's where they're putting the buildings, where the developers want them and not where planners would put them. And that's something Eric Garcetti needs to get out of the business of planning and sort of the rest of the city council members. And there are some planners who may argue that for the long term, especially since, you know, the 1970s, that development has been depressed in the core of Los Angeles against what they call infill housing, building housing where existing stock is this, which has pushed new developments to the extraneous outer leaning areas more. And that if we build more housing stock here in the existing city, that that would bring prices down. Do you not see it that way? Downtown has driven out, has driven out thousands of homeless people now on the streets. We've seen a net loss in downtown of more than 3,000 single-room occupancy units, and those mostly homeless men are now on the streets of L.A. I wouldn't call that stability. I would call that incredible callousness by the gentrification forces who do not care what the long-term effects of on, on their decisions on the poor and working class in Los Angeles. They are remaking neighborhoods without thought to the humans who are there right now. Los Angeles is not responsible for uh, solving the problems of the world. Los Angeles is responsible for dealing with the people who live here now, who are poor and working class, who have a real neighborhoods that might not look beautiful to the snobbery crowd uh, among the three percenters who are moving into these areas because they think they're cool and then they immediately destroy the areas. So this is the discussion we need to be having. My respect for planners right now is at an all-time low. It reminds me very much of what the urban planners were saying back in the 40s and 50s which they got so horribly wrong, and they said, trust us, we're the planners. And what they did was they organized the poor into tall, condensed areas called public housing, the single biggest planning disaster ever to hit the United States. 
And I see what I see now is a bifurcation among the planners. Some planners are agreeing with us. They're saying you cannot gentrify an area, let in uh, through spot zoning, in other words, throwing out the existing plan that the city has allowed to become 20 years old, throw out the zoning in that plan, allow something huge and luxurious instead, and, and pretend that you haven't now ruined the lives of a couple hundred people in that area who are forced out of the, the city. So I do see people talking with two tongues on this. I think there is a split between planners. We, we see it. I think the planners you're discussing are completely wrong and are refusing to accept that the the suffering they think is okay for 20 or 30 years while we quote-unquote get it right is really wrong and is really going to create a more and more unlivable Los Angeles, unlivable for not only for the people who are here right now, but for the people get, get moving into these luxury boxes, which I call boxes of humans, which have no courtyard, no green space, nowhere for children. It's just a box with hallways. This is going to be looked back on as LA's worst period of construction since we did the dingbats, which are many of which are going to fall down in an earthquake. It's it's a it's a it's a mis mis misview and misrepresentation of how people really live. And the initiative was originally slated for the November ballot, and now it seems to be headed for March 2017. What was the driving force in making that change? Yes, we started with about maybe three or four, I can't remember, measures on the November ballot. And we thought it was the perfect time to have a citywide discussion and turn this into a referendum about what people think Los Angeles should become. Um, do we want to be a more, um, what somebody called it, a garden city uh, where you can breathe and live? Or do we want to copy San Francisco and be extremely dense and uh, have a lot more white people and a lot fewer uh, minorities, which is what San Francisco has chosen to do? Um, and that, but we need that discussion. So, But suddenly, more and more and more measures came along. And then to our just complete surprise, Donald Trump moved into what looks like a position to be on the ballot. And I'm not saying, I'm not picking a, a candidate here, but I am saying that um, there will be a media circus over the presidential election in November. Well, this is no time for us to have a major discussion about the future of Los Angeles. We want to be noticed on the ballot. We'll win November. We don't want just to win. We want a major discussion. We want people to start paying attention to what Mayor Garcetti is doing, to what each individual council member is and has been doing, to the developers who have benefited, to the immediate area around those projects where you now have five and six times the traffic, but LA has only grown by six or seven percent. So let's put these pieces all together and figure out what is actually happening in LA and then vote. And we can't do that uh, nearly as well now in November because of the incredible circus surrounding um, all the, the, the measures, many of which are valid. I'm not dumping on them, but we want to be a mano a mano against the, the, the process here. And the best way to do that is in March 
now. The city council is running for office, seven of them, and, and that's going to be a great time to say, it's interesting, city council members so-and-so, that you have been involved in this for several years, and the end result has been terrible traffic, terrible stress on the infrastructure, and oh, by the way, you drove out people in that neighborhood and brought in richer people. Is that the plan? It certainly is an important discussion to be having, and I'm glad that it's taking place right now in the city. As as all these things are going around and going up, then, you know, if there is something to be done, we can do the right thing. But speaking of other initiatives, the County Federation of Labor released their Build Better LA. What do you think about that plan? Well, it's uh, almost the opposite of what we're doing. I call it the Build Better Boxes and Bad Boxes initiative. It's it's a, a move, and, and as you probably know, um, a lot of it was hammered out in city council offices. It's not a um, it's not a, um, a measure that uh, attempts to rein in the city council's activities. It, it goes the opposite direction. The measure actually gives city council far more power to meddle on individual pieces of land. In fact, it's a land. It's a parcel by parcel. Let's fight each one of these parcel by parcel. Let's let the city council come in and decide more and more of these of these projects. Let's give them far more power and um, encourage way more developer giving to their campaign coffers and so distort what is normal planning in any any you know respectable city that you won't be able to identify this as planning anymore. It will be an incredible, greedy, wild west system. The council in this measure is even being given the power to decide, uh, let's say I'm a developer, and I go to the city council because they're now the, the uber planning czars of L.A., not just the planning czars. And I ask them, look, I want to build this luxury tower. I'll include in 20 units of affordable housing in this in this skyscraper. Is that... Is that good with you guys? And they say, yeah, yeah, we, we want more of those. We think we need as much housing as possible so we can add 5 or 10 or 15 units of affordable housing in there somewhere. So they approve it. In this measure, the developer can then come back and say, you know what? My numbers were wrong. I'm not going to make quite as much profit as I thought I would. I need to reduce the number of affordable housing. I need to cut back on it by a lot. Is that Okay. It's going to be up to the city council in this law, this insane law, build better bad boxes. Uh, it's going to be up to the city council to decide if the individual developer is making enough money on his original plan or not. And that's just laughably horrible, awful law. I mean, when we get, when we are able to finally explain this, we, when we get the, the numbers out, um, as this moves along, uh, people are going to be um, are just going to be disgusted that the city council was involved in creating a measure like this to give themselves even more chances at taking money from developers and deciding who the winners are in Los Angeles. Well, we'll definitely be trying to have a continuing conversation on this, and we'll expect to see the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative on the ballot in March. Jill Stewart is the campaign director for the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. This is The City is looking for underwriting. If you're a service professional or business looking to reach our diverse and growing audience in downtown and beyond, contact us at thisisthecity.net or thisisthecitypodcast at gmail.com.
Thank you for joining us this week on This is the City. Join us next time for more of the politics, art, and culture that make Los Angeles. And be sure to check out all of the other shows in the This is the City network on our website, thisisthecity.net. This is the City is written and produced by me, Garen Kelsall, and my partner, Jana Sosnowski. Our theme music is by Taj Simmons. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We're on Twitter at This is the City LA or on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is the city. Send us a message or leave a comment and let us know what you want to hear on upcoming episodes. Until next time, be well.